It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to podcast like it's 1999. I'm your host Phil Iskov, and with us today, she's back. You love her. Jessica Ellis is here, writer director of What Lies West. Uh, previously was here for these women and the crackpots. I think was the name of it. Something um, like that. Yeah. Something to that effect. Something bordering on offensive, uh, or just straight up offensive. <laughs> um, and you're here today to talk about Lord John Marbury. Um, we talked a little bit, obviously, uh, on a previous episode as to, you know, how the West Wing came into your life and all that kind of stuff. Um, this episode, why this episode? Uh, 
you you sort of picked it in a bit of a vacuum, and I'm I'm curious as to why. I did. I I love uh, Roger Reese so much. Sure, I love sure. his character in this show, but I I have loved him for long before I saw this show. He's just a you know he was a real actor's actor, um, one of the best, and so getting him to. See, getting to see him play such a silly and fun character is just a treat. Like he's the, he's a guest actor. You can build multiple episodes around. He's just delightful. I think the first time I saw him was cheers. I I don't remember seeing him in cheers, but he was in a one-off episode of my so-called life where he played like, yeah, he played like a cool substitute teacher with an outrageous accent, like a New York Brook. I think it was supposed to be Brooklyn. It was just beyond the pale accent, but he, he was like the cool sub that all the students loved and gets kicked out. And, and I think that was the first time I saw him. And then in college, when I was taking acting classes, we watched him in um, a series called uh, that the RSC did called playing Shakespeare. And it was just like the RSC, I think sitting around going through a bunch of different techniques for acting it. And he was spectacular. He was so great. He's, yeah, I mean, he plays um, sort of this rich English man that Christie Alley's character falls in love with on Cheers. And I think he had, like, a, a fair amount of episodes. He had a pretty big arc. Um, and, I mean, he's just, at least when he's playing British, he's just so uh, endearing, but also kind of... Like in this, he plays kind of this roguish kind of ladies' man, boozing, what have you, um, that feels like even a bit within the bit. Like he knows what he's doing because he can turn it off at times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is it's a really spectacular performance. And, you know, it, it's when you name a character Lord John Marbury, <laughs> you kind of need someone of this caliber to pull that off like i think about how this could have tipped into straight up caricature in the wrong hands um and how he grounds it and makes it feel like it's a molecule away from being that but he still feels like a real person yeah i mean you need a theatrical actor and by that i don't just mean like an over-the-top actor but somebody i think with the 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 gravitas you get as a theater actor to be able to switch it on and off and to switch emotional beats really fast or or it will if you had just cast a straight kind of a you know american comedian act comedian actor in this Mm -hmm. I don't think it would have worked. I think it would have just been weird. For sure. And, and it, you know, it's, it's also, I mean, we'll get into the, the machinations of this particular episode, but what he's being brought in to deal with is no small feat, right? I mean, I, again, this is one of those things where, you know, the, the, the balancing act of tone that this show somehow successfully navigates on a weekly basis of essentially what could turn into a world nuclear war in the wrong hands. And they bring in this over-the-top, you know, could-be-silly character to defuse the situation. All of that could have really played badly. Like, it's, yeah. it's... It's a risk. I, I mean, because yeah. all you... I'm like, the whole episode is really not building up to whether this guy is actually an expert on the subject he's there to advise them for. Like the whole conversation around him until he shows up is that Leo hates him and the president <laughs> finds that hilarious. And and like the fact that he, he is there to stop a nuclear war. Oh, it's great. <laughs> I mean, it, it's risky writing. It's great. 
Yeah. It's it's the first time we've seen I don't know if it's the first time, but it feels like one of the first times where Leo is really animated in a way <laughs> of just really hating a person. I, and yeah. Just, and and really feeling I mean, the first scene they have, which is tremendous, is uh, is Lord John Marbury introducing himself to Leo. Leo saying, we've met at least 10 times. And he's like, oh, I thought you were the butler. <laughs> well, and he thinks his name is Gerald. <laughs> Gerald. It's just, I mean, which again, like, hard to tell if Marbury's serious or not. Like, is this a bit or not? Because he is a drunk. To some yeah. degree or another. So he definitely unclear. is drunk in that first scene. <laughs> so just like, I just, it's, it's really, really, it, it, it's, again, you know, we talked a fair amount about sort of Sorkin from a high altitude in the previous episode. But I do think that, you know, when it comes to comedy, when it comes to like straight up jokes, I do feel like Sorkin perhaps thinks quite highly of himself on a comedic level. I'm not sure that he's in the pantheon of comedy writers that he thinks he's in. Yeah. Um, But this is kind of the perfect, broadly comedic stuff that he does nail really, really well. Well, because it's rooted in character. Like, everything that's funny in this is coming out of, yeah, what you know about Leo's character and how much the president is enjoying winding Leo up. And then to, you know, it's an interesting choice to make this guy a drunk for sure, but also probably the the most brilliant mind on the, in the Western world on yeah. this subject that, that they <laughs> yeah. could get over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a really, that, that those are, it's playing to Sorkin's strengths. It's, it's definitely in his wheelhouse. It's not Saturday night live sketches. Totally. I mean, I don't, I should know this, perhaps, but I don't know how many episodes Marbury is in. Well, he's in two in this season, and then I think he's in two or three later? He's in Dead Irish Writers. Yeah. That much I know for sure. I don't know if he comes back again after that. He must. But my brain, I'm going to look it up. Hold on one second. I I mean, I do have Google in front of me. Maybe Maybe it's just Dead Irish Writers. I can't remember. I mean, Dead Irish Writers is one of my favorite um Season three episodes, yeah, because great, of great the, episode. The Canadian stuff, obviously. Um, oh yeah, Donna being a Canadian. <laughs> yeah, uh, pure, yeah, just just temporarily. Uh, he is in. Okay, so he's in the drop in in two thousand and one. So I guess he is in a season two episode, and then he's in Dead Irish Writers, and then he's in the Wake Up Call in um, two thousand and five, which I guess is that's season five, if I'm not mistaken. So he, he's he's got you know he's got uh, five episodes that he's in. Um, I'm sure he. I feel like he's got to have won an Emmy for this performance for guest actor or something, or at least was nominated. I imagine. I, I think he was nominated. I don't. I don't yeah. think he won, I, but I'm not sure. He's. I mean, he is of of one of the recurring characters. Because this, I mean, obviously there is a, a a large bench of actors that have come back on this show. Um, but I feel like he's one that really stands out um, because it feels like there's either you do a one-off 
or or you're like a serious recurring character mm-hmm. and he falls somewhere in between those two camps with this I, character. I think they were just having so much fun writing him. They just couldn't resist it, yeah. bringing him back a few times. And and I mean, I imagine having him. Once, it's funny. You could almost imagine that there is a British version of the West Wing that he is <laughs> a main character in, that he just pops over from time to totally. time. Uh, yeah, um, he, he unfortunately isn't with us anymore, but no. uh, just a, a, a tremendous actor. And, and I, I do love, I think it's in, I think it's in Dead Irish Writers um, because they're doing, they're doing a big birthday party or something to that yeah, effect for, for Bartlett. Yeah, for Mrs. Bartlett, yeah. Yeah, um, that's right, it's for her. And, and the first thing he says is how amazing her breasts look in the dress. Uh, he's he's just he's 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 amazing. Um, what I what I love yeah. is that he's written. At, he could be really smarmy, but for so, but yes. all the women actually seem to find it really funny. I, right. I, it's not in this one, but at one point, s- someone asks CJ about him, and she just says he calls me Principessa. And like, <laughs> they just all love him. Yeah, it, I, I think part of it. And again, like this does come back to a little, and we talked a little bit about this in the previous episode, but you know, the playful sexism does seem to be a thing <laughs> to some degree or another in this series. For and, sure. and again, it's just, it's in the execution of the actors that you kind of give it a pass, whether you should or not is it's just interesting. There's something very charming about the way that it's done that makes it kind of palatable. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky because, you know, I I think if you talk to any woman, she's going to say that there are guys that she has flirtatious relationships with and guys where flirtation is not appropriate. And it's kind of a case by case thing as much as we would like it to be a like a clear black and white rule. Um, And and John Marbury skates on the charming side of it, at least as as written. But it also just the actresses don't seem like they're trying to convey a, a secret deeper level where it bothers them. They seem to really find it kind of funny so yeah it's you you can critique it as sexist for sure but that that may be an unnuanced reading of of relationships i don't this is a much bigger issue that i'm qualified to go into yeah i i you know it's interesting too i think as well i think that the women get a kick out of how much he upsets the men Yes, absolutely. I mean, anybody that can get under Leo's skin, because Leo is so unflappable, is just yeah. that's going to be fun for everybody else. Yeah. So I think that I think that's definitely part of it too. I, I just it it is interesting. I mean, we talked about the Danny CJ stuff, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in this episode. But um, yeah, the 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 male female relationships on this show do traffic in some strange terrain or some cringy terrain at times. Sure. But I but I think that um I don't know. I mean it, we, we you know we talked about that that the the infamous uh um these women scene in that episode. And and again, you know, we talked about it obviously in that episode, but there's something about this sort of old timey way that sort like there is this kind of old dad kind of perspective of male female relationships that I don't think he um 
I don't think he thinks is sexist, if that makes sense. Like yeah. it feels classical, and I'm, I'm putting that in quotation marks, that he, I don't know. It's got this like I, – I think it all kind of comes back to – because Sorkin does feel like a classical writer. Like I, he does feel like a guy who has a love for Billy Wilder and, 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 for sure. you know, and Howard Hawks and all of those old classic style movies. Um and I don't think in his head he's like, well, they got away with it back then, so I should get away with it now. I think it's – I genuinely think it's a stylistic choice. Like it doesn't feel like it's – but again, I'm not making excuses for it, but do, do you sort of see what I'm saying? I do, but then I, I don't know. I think there might have been a point where he didn't really think about it. That was just how he wrote. And But then you get into later episodes. I can't – it's in season – it's one of the Ainsley Hayes episodes, so it's probably season two or three. There's the – there's like an office worker who is mad about Sam saying something slightly sexual to Ainsley. Yeah. And I mean, and it, when he starts defending his positions, you know, he's actually sensitive about them. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think there was, I, I think there's some inherent misogyny in Sorkin's writings that he has never been prepared to confront Defense. and is very yeah. defensive of. Yeah. Um, but, but when you're reading just the text and looking at just the text, like, it, yes, it gets away saying. with it, yeah. No, for sure, and and there is something uh, cringy about Ainsley's reaction to that in the episode as well, because Ainsley's like, "I like it, and it doesn't bother me." Like he's, and again, it's not necessarily as though that perspective is wrong per se, right? Like there, it's it's empowering to a certain degree the way that Ainsley is is interpreting Sam's flirtations. But it also feels, to your point, as though it's there to make it seem as though what Sorkin's writing isn't icky. Yeah, he's clearly <laughs> defending his argument there and and having the smarter, better-known character dismiss this, like, character who was just a walk-on for yeah. what is, frankly, an irrational... Like, her, <laughs> yes. her, her argument is not even good. There's an argument to be made, but it's the worst version of that argument. And, like, yes, yes. that just feels really like, Aaron, go talk to a therapist. This is not something... <laughs> like the TV yeah, no, needs I to be taught. But then he makes Studio 16 and it all works out, right, Jessica? Yeah. <laughs> I love Studio 60, but oh my God. Yeah. That 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 is definitely the most um working through your stuff in your work. Like uh, it's 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 an admit, and part of it is why I find it such a fascinating show. Like I do, I genuinely, similar to you, I think to some degree, watch that show and enjoy it. But enjoy it in in a how did this get made sort of way. Well, yeah, and in a like oh, so this is what happens when a writer goes through a mental breakdown on screen. <laughs> this is the, and they give him money to do it. That's neat. I yeah. I I hope you I know. don't ever do that. <laughs> it, it's the most. I don't know if it's the most, but it feels definitely up there as one of the biggest blank check shows. Like every now and then. Like another one that felt this way to me, and I only watched the pilot, and I don't, I don't, whatever. But Avenue Five, did you watch Avenue Five? I didn't. I don't even think I've heard of it. I think it's called Avenue Five. I believe it is. Uh, it's the um, um, the guy that did, forgive me, uh, Veep, ha- okay. has a show on HBO, a comedy with Hugh Laurie, that's basically like sort of Star Trekky, but it's like a cruise ship in space sort of thing. Oh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that what it's called? 
I know what oh, show you're talking about, but for some reason that I name. I want to make sure that I, I didn't say I'm. I mean, I could totally be wrong, but I think it's called Avenue Five. Um, yeah, it's called Avenue Five. Okay. Uh, for reasons that escape me, I saw the pilot. I'm not sure why it's called Avenue Five, but um, it is so colossally expensive and felt like just felt like I like Star Trek. I want to, or maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it just felt so. Um, what if I could do anything? What would I do? Um, and I hear it gets better. It got a season two. Who knows? But it's just blank check shows like Studio Six, where, where it's just like, you know, he did Veep. He won. He's got more Emmys, and you know, so. Be- Sixty and 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 yeah, it's so fucking crazy. Someday, I don't know. I kind of want to do a podcast about Studio yeah. Sixty now. Can I be your like co-host? I, can we? Absolutely. Can I make you agree to this on air? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I it's hundred percent do it. I'm, yeah, I mean, just as a one-off, we should do it because it, it's. I mean, obviously, it only had one season, and what a season it was! But it's, what a you really can sort of sense the turning point because, like, there's a moment where. He's written them in a vacuum, right? Like he's probably written four or five ish yeah. before it's released, and then there's the moment where he's like, "Oh God, people don't like this." <laughs> like, I wonder like, what that must have felt like for him yeah. because he never had negative reaction to no. anything he'd done. He was golden boy who went yeah. from success to success. Like yeah. I know he was frustrated with some of the the ways the network handled Sports Night, but like critically, yeah. people loved that show. I also wonder, and you know, not to turn this into a Studio 60 episode, but maybe we will. <laughs> I'll just say, I also wonder if, and I thought this at the time, had 30 Rock not been the same season, right? Um, or, or 30 Rock just didn't exist. And I'm not saying I don't like 30 Rock, but in a vacuum, let's just say, for argument's sake, it's just Studio 60. He still would get dinged by the SNL writers and what have you, being like, what is this? Like, what show are you think you, this is? But but Thirty Rock just under just brutal. I mean yeah. th- that that was the thing where it's like if there wasn't the comparison, maybe Studio Sixty finds its footing and maybe it you know limps to a season two and you know, wins some Emmys or who knows what. But with Thirty Rock just being there to kick the shit out of it on the side, this is just even worse. Well, yeah, I mean a show with actual SNL you know yeah. people from Bonafides, that world, yeah. it yeah. it really exposed the ignorance of his take on how that looks. But I respect that he came on 30 Rock and did and did a bit. To did like, he? I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, he showed up. I, I Forgive me, I don't know what season it is. You should just YouTube it. It's a great scene where uh, he's playing himself and essentially does a walk and talk with Liz Lemon. Oh, that's um, amazing. And it's... And, yeah, it, it felt like a moment of recognition that Studio 60 didn't work and that he wanted to be on the show that did is is, is kind of fantastic. But That's cool. Back to the West Wing. Yes. Um, I'm going to give a synopsis of this episode. Uh, the Kashmir border powder keg becomes more explosive when the Indian army invades Pakistani-held territory, making the threat of a nuclear confrontation frighteningly real to President Bartlett, who calls in Lord John Marbury, played by Roger Reese, as we mentioned, an eccentric British diplomat with ties to both warring nations and a weakness for booze. An angry Josh is subpoenaed to testify as the investigation into substance abuse amongst White House staffers 
uh, grinds on towards his inevitable target, Chief of Staff Leo McGarry. Mandy floats a trial balloon among the staff to test the reaction to her notion of representing a liberal Republican. And the president is surprised when Charlie asks him if he can date his willing daughter, Zoe. Uh, Lord John Marbury aired on November 24th, 1999. It was written by, sorry, story by Patrick Cadell and Lawrence O'Donnell, teleplay by Aaron Sorkin and Patrick Cadell. It was directed by Kevin Rodney Sullivan. 13.65 million viewers tuned into this episode. Um, there's a couple things that I wanted to um, talk about. One is a quote from Elizabeth Moss. She said, Zoe Bartlett is a lot different from me in the sense that she's very outgoing and supremely self-assured. I don't mean that I don't, I don't mean that I have a confidence problem, but she has this extra bit of gumption. For example, she asked a guy out on a date and that's something I would never do. Um, let's talk about the Zoe Charlie thing just quickly because it it's, it's interesting. Um, it's, so she she's flat out asks Charlie out, yeah. right? And Charlie doesn't really, is kind of stunned, doesn't really know what to do with it. Um, and it's a very cute scene. They're adorable. They, they have such a lovely chemistry. And, um, you know, it's, it is one of those relationships that I feel, and I, I've, I've, I've mentioned this a little bit before, but um, I think it was in... Um, with Alex Berger on a a proportional response where Charlie did feel like the one main cast member that I'm not sure ever really got his meaty Mm storylines. Like he'll have episodes where they'll give him something um, within the context of that episode. But Zoe is the closest thing he had to a serialized storyline. And it, straight up disappears between seasons uh, one and four. It's so weird how it disappears. Yeah. Like we, they, we only know that they have broken up when she shows up with the French boyfriend later on. And, and then four, it yeah. becomes important briefly. And it, it just seems like the writers weren't that interested in it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it seems a, like the writers weren't that interested in it. B, I don't know where you go with it. Like I, I sort of understand that it's like, there, there's only so much meat on the bone in terms of how uncomfortable you can make Bartlett with them dating. Um, and, you know, it plays a significant role in the assassination attempt, spoiler, that happens at the end of this season. And then it plays a significant role, obviously, in Zoe's kidnapping in season yeah. four, um, which are two giant things that Charlie gets to be instrumental in for all intents and purposes. Um but uh, both of them kind of tap into um, the, the the racist elements, specifically in season one, which we'll which we'll talk about. But yeah, it, it it they're so sweet together. They have something really charming. But to your point, I imagine the writers in the room were like, "It's kind of like a meanwhile in another television show, right?" Because like Zoe's not fundamentally yeah. involved in in the White House, so it it does feel tangential. To some degree, yeah. It it I would like to have been a fly on the wall to see how the breaking of the season unfolded to yes. be like, well, we know we want people to get shot, but we need a reasoning for people to get shot. Maybe Charlie should be involved. Well, what's the easiest way to involve? You know, yeah. like I, I would be interested to know like in what way all of those elements fell into place. But to your point, it does seem like Charlie often is only important when they want to talk about race which is not the most well-rounded thing. Yeah, they can do with the character. Yeah, it's... And then I actually thought... 
that they might do more with the Big Brother storyline that that manifests in season three um, with Mark Harmon's character. But then they kind of drop that too. Yeah, that just disappears. Um, So it's, yeah, it's, they flirt with giving him stuff and then they kind of go like, "Mm, I mean, all right. I don't, I mean, do we... I do think that it's a symptom of, and Alex Berger said this very adroitly when we um, spoke of it on that episode, that there's a lot of mouths to feed on this show. It's a big cast. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that it was not because they didn't love Charlie's character or they didn't want to do interesting things with Charlie's character. But I think that ultimately it's like, I got six other people that I've got to deal with and make sure that they're getting you know, a fair amount of screen time. Yeah. Now, that's not an excuse. He's their only black lead series regular. Like, there's no excuse to not be infusing him in the show to mm-hmm. the best of their abilities. But, you know, different time, I guess, and all of that. But, um, yeah, it's just... But but to bring it back to sort of this, this particular episode and this particular storyline, it kind of dovetails both of those things, the two yeah. things that they do want to talk about with Charlie's character, it seems, um, which is... Uh, she asks him out. He says, sure, kind of. He doesn't really know what to do with it. Yeah, he's, he's, he's thrown. He's a little flummoxed. And then he, he, he clearly wants to get the okay from Bartlett before anything happens. So he goes to, 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 to Jed and asks him if it's okay if he dates Zoe. Um, he, now, they, it is interesting the way that it's actually doled out because he asks him at a really inconvenient yeah. time. So Bartlett's like, you've picked the worst time to ask me this question, which feels like a little bit of a punt because they don't, they want to be able to kind of, for Bartlett to chew on this with Leo before it comes back around at the end of the episode. Yeah. Um, But the look on Leo's face when Bartlett says... Charlie wants to go. It's just a grit, like a Cheshire grin. That's just yeah. phenomenal. He's delighted. He's delighted. And then they they have sort of a, a conversation where Leo says or asks him, "Is do you have a problem with the the race component of it?" Um, and Bartlett immediately says, "No, like that doesn't bother me at all." What seems to bother him is the age discrepancy. Um, I think just anyone dating his daughter would. He's very very paternalistic. He is. Uh, I do think the line, I think Leo says he's 21 and she's 19. And Bartlett says, a guy learns a lot in those few years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, I, which, I mean, she's not wrong. Um, it then comes full circle at the end where Charlie and him have a conversation. And I want to read the, the actual dialogue because it is, uh, Bartlett says, my hesitation uh about you going out with Zoe isn't because you're black. And Charlie says, I didn't think it was. And Bartlett says, it's not. And then Charlie says, I thought it was because I'm a guy. <laughs> it was the whole, like, Bartlett says that um, I'm Spencer Tracy at the end of Look Who's Coming to Dinner, which, as yeah. you said, It's questionable. That <laughs> it seems like maybe there was a time when he wasn't. Couldn't as... you have picked any other character who is not yeah. racist? Yeah, I'm with you. It's a I weird reference. Should. It's it's just, it's I know they were just probably going for the joke, but it's like, yeah. that raises more questions than it answers. Yeah, it's it definitely feels like um, the, the, the issue I feel, the major issue, and it's kind of the thing that sort of 
uh, the period at the end of this conversation is something that alludes to what happens at the end of the season, which is that there's going to be a lot of people that are not thrilled about Charlie dating Zoe. Yeah. you know, racist, terrible people. Um, and he says, you know what to do with the mail. Um, hate mail, I'm assuming, is what he's uh, alluding to. But uh, it, it, it definitely feels like that is the thing that's perhaps weighing on Bartlett. Maybe not the most, the parental fatherly, not wanting Zoe dating thing. But also this feels like the, the thing that... Um, is perhaps most concerning to him. Yeah, the way Sheen plays it too, even like the the kind of father knows best stuff is very jocular. But he goes dead serious at this, which is interesting because then the issue really is about, it's not that he has a problem with Charlie being black, but he has a deep concern about the problems this is going to bring on for both Charlie and Zoe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, it's, you know, it's interesting because this storyline is probably your C story in this yeah. episode. Um, and, and I understand that, first of all, I want to just rewind for a second and, and allude to what you said earlier, which is that if the end game of this season is an assassination attempt, then this is laying that, planting those seeds quite well. Yeah. Um, we know that Aaron Sorkin doesn't think that far ahead. Now, I do wonder if if there are sort of the big dramatic things at the end of each season that he is working towards in some way from like a super high altitude. And even if it's not him necessarily, if it's something that like the room is like, we think this could be a cool thing to maybe keep an eye on. Um, Cause to me, it feels like you can't just pull that out of your ass at the end of the season. I could be wrong. No, but I, I think it, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think, there's no way that they dropped this many relative things in just like as seeds scattered around and then built an ending I just can't believe that they had to have it somewhat plotted out. That's, I mean, I, I agree with you when I think about each season finale assassination attempt, end of season one running for reelection with the MS thing at the end of season two, Bartlett killing Sharif at the end of season three. And then, Zoe being kidnapped at the end of season four. These are seismic things. Yeah. Like they're so big that it feels crazy to me that that, that, that wasn't predestined, but I mean, who knows? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly, there's, there's hope that there's a couple writers from the West wing that I'm hoping to talk to over the course of this mini series. Um, so hopefully I can get a little bit of intel as to whether or not these are things that were aimed for. I'm assuming that they were. Um, but, but what's interesting is again, a C story for this particular Charlie Zoe stuff does plant the seed far enough back. I mean, we are at episode, I believe 11 um, of 22. That's a good distance to be able to sort of feel like we planted it and paid it off at the end of the season. Yeah. It it makes them look like geniuses. I I mean, (laughs) that you can go back that far in the season and be like, Oh, there we go. That's where it, it really got going. Yeah. Um, speaking of sort of the, the way that the show is made, uh, Kevin Sullivan was interviewed, and there's a, a, an interesting two paragraphs that I want to read from this interview, uh, where it says, On a sunny afternoon in November, director Kevin Sullivan, who directed How Stella Got Her Groove Back, looks impatient on the porch outside the Oval Office. He's waiting to shoot a scene in which the president and his aides discuss the troops Pakistan had moved to its border. It's a big day, he says to his assistant. It's a 10-page day. I'd like it if we were shooting instead of standing around. The cliche seems true. Acting is hard work. 
work, a scene taped earlier that will come into that will come to 10 seconds on TV took 15 takes and an hour to shoot. Josh, I didn't expect you back so soon, says Donna, Josh's secretary. Uh, I mean, assistant. Uh, did everything uh, Did everything go okay? No, actually, Josh replies, it didn't. Half the time they shoot again to perfect the performance, the rest, because the picture or sound isn't quite right. I, I, I just wanted to underline the idea of how long these scripts are. You know, Aaron Sorkin, notoriously yeah. very uh, verbose, lots of dialogue spoken very quickly. So these the page count of his scripts, I assume, is quite long. Um, the idea of 10-page days, I mean, you've been on sets. Um, and, <laughs> and on a TV set, it's even more brutal in terms of the time constrictions. I mean, um, with the amount of characters that they have, like getting the, the coverage that you would need in a scene where like one of the Oval Office scenes where everybody's in there. That that just is a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, and, and to our perhaps listeners that, that don't know what coverage is, uh, that is essentially different angles to make sure that you're covering, quote unquote, every necessary angle to make sure that when you get to the editing room, you have all the footage you need. Well, and it's interesting. I've been rewatching the first season and they rely on reaction shots a lot, a mm-hmm. lot. Like scenes will get stretched by 30, 40 seconds just by showing and here's Sam's face when someone says that and here's CJ's. And, and like that means that they did have camera angles on, they had singles on everybody. And that would have just taken so long. Forever. Yeah, so it's, long. It's crazy to think about. I mean, it, take this scene in particular that we're talking about. You know, an Oval Office scene, which has uh, at minimum four people. Yeah. But like, you know, can expand to seven or eight, depending on on who it is or what the scene is. Um, Ten pages from various angles, you know, setting up, lighting, all that sort of stuff. Your downtime is very high. Um, you know, it's 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 a real high wire act. This show, which makes it look easy. Yeah. Is decidedly not easy to make. It should also be said, too, you know, uh, from a cinematography perspective, this show, take the long takes out of it for a second, which is another thing unto itself, your walk and talks that, you know, can be several pages unto themselves. All one take, someone fumbles a line, the whole thing goes back to one. But also... It's lit like those Robert Richardson hot lighting, you know, all this very sort of like beautifully cinematic photography. Again, very hard to do, right? Yeah, like, it, it occasionally drives my my uh, cinematographer husband bananas, the lighting <laughs> on this show, because there are choices in there that you're like, what? where the hell is that light coming from? Why is it orange? It's supposed to be daytime. Right, what is, right. they really went very theatrical with the lighting yes. in, in ways I don't think you even fully recognize until you stop and are like, why is it glowing neon orange outside of the restaurant? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And like I think of one of the, one of the more beautiful openings of the show is someone's going to emergency. Someone's going to jail. Yeah. Uh, Jessica, you shot that, that uh, or directed that episode and it opens with just this gorgeous sunrise kind of, twilight dawn dusk lighting outside and it's all it's, but you're just like jesus christ like i can't even imagine what it takes to set up some of these shots yeah. that they do and it's interesting too because you know you have er which obviously john wells produces prior to this show and er which is obviously a show that i love um is is gritty in the way that it's shot right like it's yeah. it's not uh it's not theatrical it's not moody in the same way um a beautifully shot show in its in its own way, but also just a simpler quote unquote show to shoot. 
fluorescent lighting, big bright lights, like it's a yeah. hospital. Um, this show, with its dark browns and its moodiness and its in you know its interiors, and it feels like it's always uh, it's it's warm, mm-hmm. but it's also uh, difficult. Is this is all just to say that this is all stuff that adds to the the difficulty of making this show, on top of as as we said, coverage and all these all these various things. Um, I want to sort of we'll walk through the various storylines, but I kind of want to just talk about the opening, uh, the the cold open of this episode, um, where uh, basically the episode opens: Navy surveillance, Pentagon, blah blah blah. They're all figuring out what's going on in Kashmir and and Pakistan. Uh, Josh talks with Donna about being a caddy, which just felt like kind of filler. What? Yeah, like, that that feels like cares? such such like they've made that up. I, yeah, it's just like chafe that they made up, but like literally on the day. Yeah, uh, it doesn't it doesn't come back at, at all uh, for for reasons that just whatever. Uh, Josh is subpoenaed um, by uh, Clay Pool, who is essentially the. Um, Oh my god! Why am I drawing a blank on the on the guy who was uh, went after Clinton? Um, oh, Star, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. His last name was Star, right? I'm Ken Star, yeah. Ken Star, yeah. Uh, he's sort of the the fill in for Ken yeah. Star in this situation. Um, and uh, Bartlett and Leo are called to the Situation Room. They're briefed on the invasion, India's invasion of Pakistan, Kashmir, all of that. Uh, Toby tells Sam they have to appoint an ambassador to Pakistan because they haven't done it yet, which seems crazy. But then I was thinking the other day, like, Biden hasn't. There's a bunch no, of ambassadors that have not We have been. had, like, 50 ambassador spots empty since yeah. 2016. Yeah, don't even get me started on that. Uh, CJ walks into the Oval Office, asks if it's a full lid. Leo lies to her and says yes. This is sort of... Um, the most boys clubby moment I've yeah. felt up until this point. Um, and I'm curious as to sort of your thoughts on it. I know that they claim that this, and we'll get into the unpacking of why she was lied to, but I also wonder if it does have to do with gender a little bit too. Oh, I think it has enormously to do with gender. And, and I, I mean, it's, it's so clear to, to CJ that that's, that is what's going on that her and this this plays yeah. through for the next few episodes too. like that she begins to feel like her perspective is not as valued yeah. as anybody else and that she might be kind of on the chopping block if she screws up too many more times. But, yeah, it's such a it's not it, you know, it, I, I have always felt this, but like their reasons for lying to her are not really justifiable in, in any way like. It, it's just such a brutal thing. I mean, I have no trouble believing that that the decision would happen. I wonder, you know, Dee Dee Myers, who was, I think, one of Clinton's press secretaries, was a consultant on this show. And I wonder if this story came out of her. Yeah, I mean, she talks a little bit about other episodes that did speak to this dynamic as well. I mean, I, part of it too, and Toby talks about this later in terms of CJ being too close to the press corps. Um, and her ability to quote unquote lie to them, um, which I imagine is a press secretary issue across the board to some degree. But it's something we never see textually in CJ. Correct. Correct. Ever. Like, in fact, a couple episodes later, when, or I think the next episode, when she li- when she lies to them about the rescue mission, she has yes. no problem doing it. Right. I mean, I think that this is. I mean. 
<laughs> it does feel like there's a bunch of things kind of baked into this particular storyline. First of all, it tees up something that's un- that's an issue for for CJ for you know a fair amount of time, uh, which is. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Trust within the administration and whether or not uh, she's up to the task, I guess, is sort of, again, I'm not, I'm not making excuses for this, but her being you know, the, the only female in the sort of the, you know, the senior staff, uh, it does unfortunate, unfortunately feel gendered, which is Mm -hmm. not good. Um, but it does feel like this is also the beginning of what I feel like is the crystallizing of CJ's character and the fortitude and the spine that Allison Janney brings to it and them really figuring out how to write CJ. I mean, this is, and and you see it in the next episode where you have the the um the parents of um Lowell Lydell, the gay boy who uh, is killed, and how she really is emotionally invested in that storyline and gets and gets very upset about the way that it all kind of plays out. And you start to that's the first time I feel like we really see the CJ that we know and love, mm-hmm. the one who pushes back, the one who stands her ground. Now, she doesn't always get her way um and and often has to sort of take her lumps, but I do think that finding that finding that voice for CJ was important and I do think that this is a linchpin in that. But to your point, it also feels a little bit, it feels a little sexist, unfortunately. Well, it it, it just, I've always thought like it seems a little forced just because we had never seen CJ do anything inappropriate or, I mean, she has this flirtation with Danny, but like everybody knows about that and and everybody seems encouraging it until suddenly one day they decide she can't lie about Pakistan. So they're going to hide this from her. It just, The plot has always seemed forced, but I totally agree that it it's a it's a crystallizing moment for her character. I particularly love in, you know, I think the next episode, Leo says to her, like, oh, I know you've had some issues lying to the press. And she was like, no, I have issues with you lying to me. And it's yeah. really nice that they gave her that moment to lay out what actually happened as opposed to the the male narrative of being like, oh, but CJ's being emotional. CJ's right. overreacting. Right. Yeah, it's it's. 
I mean, it's like she says, I'm either I'm either in the room or I'm not. Like yeah. I'm either I'm either a part of this situation or I'm not. And you can't kind of keep me on both. And and Toby does recognize that and, and does apologize for it in his own Toby's sort, of. sort of way. Yeah. Um it, it's it is not it's not handled as well as I would have liked. Um it's also a complicated thing that they're trying to do like they're they're really trying to thread a bunch of needles with this storyline yeah. and I don't I don't know that you know that they're completely successful in what they're trying to do but it does open the door to the stuff we were talking about big picture wise for CJ that I think is incredibly important um but I but I hear you on that um so then Claypool uh Josh meets with Claypool who ran this drug investigation the previous episode uh we essentially had this or maybe it was two episodes ago. I can't remember. Um, but either way, Josh susses out that Lillian Field got Leo's file from when he was in uh, rehab for Valium addiction. Um, and thus, there's sort of this weird witch hunt that Josh has put in control of to find out who is, who's on drugs in the White House, which is absurd and not a thing and whatever. Um, but uh, so... The the Claypool thing is more about them using this drug investigation in quotations as a way to get at Leo, and they've figured this out. Um, Josh tells Sam he doesn't need a lawyer. Sam tells him he should bring a lawyer. He meets with him the first time. Um, and I got to be honest, smug Josh is kind of my least favorite Josh. He's very unlikable. Yeah. <laughs> He's right? really We're, I I I love Josh as a character but yeah, yeah when he gets into his arrogant you know kind of I forget did he go to Harvard Princeton wherever probably. he went like like on that high horse he's just yeah. so despicable He's really insufferable and and like it's not even that like I I'm I'm not on his side cuz obviously I am I mean Claypool Claypool seems like a dick and this all of this is a, is is nonsense and it's all just sort of uh, you know, Republicans, you know, making hay out of things that that obviously uh, is hypocritical. But I, I I just feel like when Josh plays the whole like cool guy smugness thing, it just doesn't play well now. Um, I just I don't like it. Yeah, I had one friend who was just eternally in love with Josh, and I was always like, sure. why? <laughs> I don't can't follow you down that road. He's, I mean, when he's in the pocket, yeah, I think Josh is great. I, I think Josh is sweet. You know, I retweeted the other day that one of the great scenes with him, and uh, I think it's in season three, I believe, when um, he's on the stoop with uh, Amy Gardner and telling her about why he. I mean, and, and you really kind of get a sense that Josh uh, is not much of a ladies' man and a very kind of like inside his own head guy. Yeah. Um, and when he softens and you can see that insecurity in Josh, I find him very endearing and very charming. Yeah, I will say, I think it was, I think Bradley Whitford approached this knowing that that version of the character was off-putting. Yeah. I think yes. he decided to play this as like, this guy is feeling insecure. And so mm-hmm. he defaults to arrogance as a, as a deflection. Like, totally. so I think he, I don't think this was you know, poor acting. I think Bradley Whitford knew what he'd do it. Yeah. But the effect is that jo- you really are like, Josh, how about you not be a smarmy asshole? You're not helping the situation. Right. Uh, so then we have Sam goes to be Josh's lawyer for the second part of the deposition. Um, and 
yeah, it doesn't go very well. He almost <laughs> perjures himself. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it kind of it doesn't. It basically just says like the the end of this storyline is essentially they have your file. They say this to Leo. We have your back, but it's going to get out. Like it's it's coming. It's coming down the pike. But we're all here for you. Um, and that's sort of the movement of this storyline, which then in the s- subsequent weeks comes to a head. Um, all this Claypool stuff feels very much like Clinton. It all felt very yeah. much sort of cut from the, the you know, the Monica Lewinsky's and the what have you's of sort of, um, which is, I mean, it's just, is just quaint now. I mean, not to, not to in any way suggest that Clinton's behavior was okay, but I just think in my brain right now where I'm just like, after what we lived through with Trump, the idea that a Democrat could ever do anything even remotely morally questionable is just like out the window as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, a, a drug a drug problem is like a, a fond dream compared to... A fond, to- exactly. Um so just to kind of put a button on this, uh, the CJ storyline, the reason that it becomes an issue for her is that she has a reporter flat out ask her about the troop movement in India and Pakistan. And she straight up laughs at the guy yeah. and mocks him and says that his source is bogus. Um, and then she finds out what happened and says, I was Oh, sorry. She literally says, I was just in the Oval Office 10 minutes ago, meaning she was just in there and was lied to. So she yeah. looks inept. She All of it's bad, right? She looks bad to the reporters. She looks bad within the administration. It's all bad. Um, she's obviously upset when Leo eventually tells her about it. She pushes back, but Leo kind of just tells her tough, like, deal with it. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it essentially... Toby then says that it's about the Danny and how close she is with the press and what have you. It all just kind of doesn't feel genuine. It all feels kind of baked into too much stuff. Um, And then essentially the end of the episode, Toby apologizes to CJ, but she has to pull it out of him. Basically. It's not great. I don't, I don't know how I feel about that scene. It's not great. Yeah, it 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 just it feels I mean, I guess it's nice that he knows he should apologize, but he doesn't really apologize. Yeah. And then she's this it's so weird. This this episode has a bunch of stuff that people keep saying are happening that we don't see. Like when she has that conversation with Toby, he's like well, we decided that you're too close to the press and so we weren't going to tell you. And it's like, literally, we saw her walk into the room where they were already talking. So what they had, did they decide this psychically? Like, there was no conversation about that. I agree. And then you, in the next yeah. scene, CJ is saying, like, Toby apologized to me. And it's like, he really didn't. What? Did he say more after we cut? Because Well, no, that's, he didn't. that is the weird part of it, is that, we're there for that scene and the conversation, I mean, again, we can assume perhaps that the conversation went longer once we cut out of that scene, but there's no, like, the only real tension in that scene is Leo saying, yes, it's a full lid. And Leo and Bartlett have a, the exchange a look where Bartlett is basically saying, like, yes, this is the right play. Which yeah, I've would- never understood exactly why it was on Toby to apologize her to her and not Leo. Except maybe as the communications director, That's he's her thing. direct yeah. supervisor, not he's Leo. He's her boss. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's strange. I also want to ask, and this is a bigger, broader question about the Toby and CJ tension that exists between them. Yeah. Do you think they've ever hooked up? I don't think so. I I, I think they just have one of those relationships that is, you know, long-term kind of basically flirtatious, but never would develop into anything. And, and I mean, I think part of it came out of Richard Schiff and Allison Janney at some points weren't allowed on set when the other one was acting because they would laugh too much. The two of them would crack each other up. So they clearly had some real chemistry together, but you know, in the, in that era, generally a woman survived in an all male workplace by flirtation. That was the strategy you had to adopt. So she flirts with Josh. Sometimes she flirts with, I mean, that, that is just a mechanism of how she has to survive professionally. And, and like nothing against women who have to do that. You have to do that in film. Like, you know, it's still a part of, of the professional reality for a lot of women. Um, and, and, but yeah, there is always just something a little, especially it, it weirdly, it seemed like John Wells was really into the idea that there was more with Toby and CJ than we knew. Uh, when he took over, it does feel like they dial that up a little bit more. They never fully commit to it in any way, but it does feel like, yeah, I don't, I just, it, it's, it's clear that Richard Schiff and Allison Janney had chemistry yeah. and that they enjoyed each other. Um, and if you ask them, I'd be curious about their thoughts as to whether or not in the back of their head they ever acted on it or if it was just sort of uh, a fun work kind of thing. Um, but it, it is just interesting. They have a very interesting uh, relationship. We talked about the, you know, uh, the, the power dynamic that exists between the two of them, um, which then flips on itself. Yeah, and CJ she becomes, becomes his boss. His boss, um, which is interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's it's it is a fascinating relationship. It's one of the 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 more interesting ones that CJ has because I feel like CJ um, doesn't. I mean, it's not that she doesn't have a relationship with with Sam and 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 uh, and Josh. Um, but Toby feels like her guy. Like they, they feel like they're the ones that are the most sort of, um, connected, I guess. Yeah. I I think they have a deeper friendship. Like there's just an implicit understanding between those two characters. Totally. Um, which is really interesting. And, uh, the, you know, it's so hard to understand CJ as like a sexual character because the one thing I've never been able to get past is that she slept with the vice president, which I cannot under any circumstances picture that character doing that. Just just cannot imagine how that came into her character. But that choice throws a whole lot up into the air about her that they never really go into. I wouldn't say that I don't think of CJ as a sexual character because I do think that she has two of the most prominent romances on the show. Sure. I mean, both with Danny and with Mark Harmon. Yeah. It works, but within her own workspace. No, I agree with you. I, 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 this is one of those things where, and I I mentioned it on an episode, I don't remember which one, um, where uh, Hoynes kind of, smack CJ down and uh, hints at them having a past. Now, again, it doesn't necessarily feel sexual in that moment, but you do get the impression that like, 
I don't know. They might have locked horns during the campaign or something yeah. like that. Um, my assumption is that some industrious writer was brought onto the show, watched all the episodes, clocked that, went into the room and was like, wouldn't it be interesting if when, you know, in season five or six or something like that. When So, so it's one of those things where I assume that when John Wells brought on the staff at the top of season five said, you know, go through all four seasons, you know, figure out if there's stuff that we can be running with, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And this was one of those things that someone brought up to your point though. It's, it's a big retcon. It's a big thing that I'm just, that I'm not really sure I completely buy. Yeah. Um, And it's for a one-off episode too. Like they never even really do anything else with it outside of that. It's very odd. Yeah. It's, it just feels Weird. I, I don't know. So many of the choices with CJ later on are are somewhat confusing to me. But but they but they land her in a way that I was happy with. Yeah, I I actually really like where she ends up. But yeah, but when and when we're in this season, you know where she is right now, she's just such a force on screen. You know, there were not a lot of characters like her at the time, and and I agree. She was spectacular. Um. In terms of uh, female characters that are not particularly well dealt with, Mandy's storyline in this episode is interesting in a vacuum. I don't know that it's interesting, maybe interesting is the wrong word, I don't know that it's fair to Mandy's character because you're just setting her up to have the shit kicked out of her. Um, Yet again. Yeah, they were Um, just using her as a punching bag at this point. So Mandy shows up in Sam's office and says she'd like to take on a new client who's a Republican named Mike, Mike Bryce, I believe. Um, first of all, I don't fully think I understand Mandy's role or Mandy's job. I can't think of any way in which that would not be a conflict of interest, given that she's in Oval Office meetings, like for her yeah. to go work for a Republican. Like that just seems, yeah, she's supposed to be a PR consultant but she doesn't run like a firm it's just her it it makes no sense it makes no sense they just Uh, wanted to set up the point where sam is like no we're fighting these people we can't work with them right like again from thirty thousand feet the notion that like sam is the most sort of flexible along the political spectrum of trying to find which i think is true i do think that sam is the guy who does try to give all of branches and then that doesn't work, but he tries. So I get why Mandy goes to him first, and I get why the deposition and the Claypool stuff and the Leo stuff all leads him to a place of emphatically saying, Mandy, you need to pick a side. You're either with us or against us. Yeah, and logically it works. But but it only works, not only, it's only helpful to Sam's character. Mm -hmm. It's not helpful to Mandy's character. In fact, we're throwing her to the wolves again and just making her look incompetent and dumb I don't yeah. know why we do this to this poor character. This they character just, just, it's brutal. I don't, yeah. I don't know what, I will never understand how such a brilliant room of writers just couldn't figure out anything to do with this character that was interesting except making her walk into rooms and scream at people. It's really strange. They, I do think that at a certain point it becomes clear that, and the big, sort of the big nut for her coming down the road is the report yeah. that essentially she writes the, the, the cliff's notes of how to dismantle this administration um, when she's fired. 
she goes off and she writes this thing. Um, that's a juicy, good thing. Um, and, and it gives them lots of fodder. And it also isn't bad for Mandy's character in the sense that it's her grappling with bad choices that she made and sort of um, feeling genuine regret of this. Like, I think there's some good stuff baked into that. But that's the only thing that really happens to her from the for the rest of the season. Yeah, and, and then she disappears. Yeah, you know, there was an interesting argument to make with Mandy's character as like yeah. that the the administration could not deal with criticism of itself and they intentionally got rid of her by just writing her off with no explanation. I think yeah. they they missed an opportunity to be incisive about how insular the senior staff was and how how they there was a level of criticism they couldn't look in the face. Um, I agree with you. I, and I and and I would I would argue that you know Aaron Sorkin has talked about how one of his biggest regrets was not um, making Emily Proctor a series regular. Um, you know the Ainsley Hayes character that's brought in in season two is the perfect foil to to the stuff he's right. Like she she's an open Republican, not a a crazy one, a moderate one for the most part. And she's the perfect counterbalance. And she's not the villain, quote unquote. She's working within the administration. She gives you all the pieces of the stuff that you need to be able to show the counterpoint rather than a media counterpoint, which always feels fraught. Yeah. Yeah. It feels a little soulless when it's a media thing. Yeah. I mean, man, though, you want to talk about things that feel dated, uh, a, a moderate for the people Republican today feels yeah, way more insane than any stereotype yeah. type of the Democrats that are in this show. Um, oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, today, if Ainsley Hayes would be, I don't know, Marjorie Taylor Greene now. I mean, yeah. it, just, it would be like just something so absolutely insane. Um, I want to just sort of loop back and and uh, and wrap up the, the Marbury stuff. Um, he is obviously great. We've taught, he doesn't have a ton of scenes in this episode, quite honestly. He's only got like three scenes. Um, he's got a couple in the next episode when this actually does resolve itself and he is able to, to walk everybody back to their corners. Um, but um, there's a really lovely callback in, in his first scene. He's trying to smoke a cigarette in the Oval Office. Yeah. And, and Leo's like, you can't smoke that in here. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and the end of the episode is a lovely moment where he's putting, he's got a cigarette dangling from his lips. Bartlett tosses him a Zippo and the, the over the credits, you hear him lighting the cigarette. Like I do love, they do that a couple times over the course of the series where like you get to hear something yeah. over, over the credits. Um, it's just really nice. Um, I also appreciate that they didn't try to resolve this, India situation in one episode um, yeah. that they that they knew they needed to and that it would you know that to serialize that which is again not something they do it all that often in this first season um, I also have to note that CJ is on the phone with someone and makes a Gilbert and Sullivan joke because of course um, how could we not it's a great joke I mean it's it's <laughs> it's very Sorkin-y but at the time yeah. like that was yeah. a stellar Stellar bit. And uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, he Marbury just owns that last scene that, that he's yes. in in the Oval Office with it. And I mean, that's when you really see, like, oh, this is an actor. Yes. This is and a this- brilliant man, right? Yeah. Like you you're seeing him um 
you know, obviously Sorkin is very good at writing oratory and writing sort of characters that are very theatrical, but, but, you know, the music kicks in and you're just like, yeah, whatever Marbury says is, is the word of God. Um, he's great. He, he shows that he understands the emotions of both sides of this conflict um, in a way that I think is really, is really fantastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have to ignore the whole fact that this is a bunch of white people solving a, a crisis halfway across the world to which the ambassadors to the country that show up throughout the episode are all just like argumentative foils. They're not like, it's, there is definitely some very, very uh, U.S. centric yeah, it's, it's uh, in this storyline. A hundred percent. I think the 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 Pakistani um, ambassador, the Indian ambassador, the Chinese ambassador, all of these ambassadors uh, feel unfortunately uh, a little pat and a little yeah. bit um, uh, cliche. I mean, in terms of or stereotypical in terms of uh, the countries that they're representing. Um, yeah, I'm not going to defend that. I mean, it's 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 unfortunate. It was 99, and and I think that, um, I mean, I think that if those if this episode was written today, I think they would probably be a lot more um, aware and and a lot more sort of uh, nuanced about this stuff. Um, but you know, I, I I would argue too that like. I mean, this is pre-9-11. I imagine that sort of the, the, the global politics of it, I, I mean, I don't even necessarily know that the show post-9-11 handles that stuff all that well. No, I, mean, I season, don't think so, yeah. You know, season three and, and, and you know, all of the... I really like season three, but season three is definitely sort of the the... You really feel the struggle of this show in season mm-hmm. three post-9-11 of just... What are we doing? How do we do this show now? Um, you know, how do we? How are we a commentary on the news? It's just it's 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 all it's all very tricky, and I and I I think that um, it's a it's it's really they navigate it as well as they can under the circumstances. Yeah, for sure. But I think that it's definitely um, it's a struggle. I can only assume. Yeah. Yeah, it would be so interesting to have transcripts from that room <laughs> to see what Oof. what the hell was going on there. And and I'll tell you too, you know, they they season 3 is speaking of, you know, we talk about um recurring characters. Amy Gardner is I mean Mary Louise Parker is absolutely incredible as Amy Gardner. Uh they actually were from what I've heard really tried to make her a series regular and she was just not interested in being a series regular, um which I think is interesting. Uh I think that Amy Gardner would have been a welcome uh, addition to to the administration, um, but uh, you know, then you've got obviously Mark Harmon. Like, there's some standout yeah. guest stars that are brought in, and some standard episodes. I mean, people speak of. I think the Women of Kumar is a is a very bold and interesting episode, despite that it's dealing with a lot of fraught issues. Um, but again, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of big swings in season three, despite yeah. um, despite uh, a, a, a tricky time to be to be navigating. I also think that just um, you know that the next episode, uh, which is "He Shall from Time to Time," which is the uh, episode, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm. Yeah, I think you're right. It's the State of the Union, right? Yeah, it's the State of the Union episode, which is the one where a lot of big shoes drop. We find out that Bartlett has MS. Um, We we, we, uh, 
bring Marbury back and he sort of handles all of that stuff. There's two wonderful moments on Marbury that is worth mentioning because I will not be covering that episode on this miniseries. Um, is when Marbury's describing a recipe, uh, a, a, a tea recipe um, with like ginger and lemon and, and a shot of whiskey. He's like, you know, actually you can take, you can get rid of everything else and it'll be just, just have a shot of whiskey. You'll be just fine. Uh, he, he says it twice, um, yeah. which is tremendous. Uh, he's just, yeah, basically just be drunk all the time and you'll be fine. Um yeah, they do a really good job of of bringing Marbury back in a in a smart and subtle way. He becomes uh, an ambassador, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, that, that's why yeah. he's there in Dead Irish Writers, I think, because yeah. he's become yes. the ambassador. Yes. Um, so I, again, they do a great job with Marbury's character of of making sure that he feels real and big and and prominent um but that that next episode is is a big one uh just in terms of um leo faces the media about his addiction um there's a beautiful scene where um leo basically pulls the ms thing out of abby yeah and says what aren't you telling me and she says he has ms and then he goes, Leo goes up to the, to the, um, the residence and Bartlett's in bed. And uh, it's a phenomenal scene from Martin Sheen's just amazing in the scene. Yeah. Um, where Leo says, why didn't you tell me? Uh, and he's like, cause I wanted to be the president. Like, and he's like on the verge of tears as to how sort of ashamed he is that he didn't tell his friend. And, and it's, it's a really powerful scene. Um, yeah. All done with him in bed. Uh, watching soap operas, um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's just it, it's 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 just interesting. This is this is not a particularly Bartlett heavy episode uh, in the sense that he's got to deal with the the various uh, geopolitical issues, but and the Charlie Zoe stuff. But for the most part, um, it's the next one where you really get to sense yeah. how how. Um, yeah, no, that, that scene in the next one is with him, with Jed and Leo is just incredible, especially because Leo calls him Jed, which we've for the first time. We've never seen him do. And and yeah, just the Leo's incredible in that scene too. Oh. You know, you get so much history between them that like you get the feeling that Jed was the guy that Leo went to when his drug yeah. habit got out of control, you know, but but Jed didn't come to Leo with this. Mm-hmm. And that's I don't know. That's yeah. That's a beautiful piece of acting out of both of them and writing. It's it's sure, just great for sure. It's it's really um, you know Bartlett is so uh, fearless and 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 open with Leo about that he'll do anything for Leo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in in a in a um, in a episode that's coming down the road, we have a a, a sex education report that comes out um, that that Bartlett essentially puts in a drawer um, at the Republicans' behest in order to um, make Leo's situation go away, at least temporarily speaking. Um, you know, Bartlett's willing to do whatever it takes to save his friend, um, which makes it that much sort of more sad that he's not willing to help willing to take the help of others when it comes to his own. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, you know, the, the MS thing, you know, I, I, I've read lots of stuff about um, 
what Sorkin wanted from this disease. Like he had a bunch of criteria and boxes he wanted to check in terms of the flexibility of this disease and, and, and what sort of ramifications it was. And he was looking for something that, that could sort of honestly go away, flare up whenever he kind of needed it to. Um, but was severe enough that the public would be like, wait a second, how did you not, you know, why did you withhold this information from us? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, and in that way, this disease, it's, it's kind of perfect. It really does do exactly what you need it to do. Yeah. I mean, especially on the spectrum of how we were talking about chronic illness at the the time, yeah. you know, it, it's funny when we think that JFK had Crohn's disease, extremely severe form of Crohn's disease where he would basically be unable to get out of bed. But I think if you would put something like that on TV and in, in in this era, nobody would have known what that was, but everybody yeah. had like a situational awareness of what MS was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I can, I can see why it worked. I, I wonder how people with MS feel about the show and how it was portrayed. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I you know, I don't know, obviously I don't know the answer. My, my assumption is that um, a bit of a double-edged sword. Yeah. I, I imagine that, that uh, the exposure and, and the, the, education, quote unquote, of this disease uh, is probably a good thing. You know what I mean? In terms of just awareness of this disease. Um, On the flip side, uh, it's used for dramatic purposes in ways that perhaps are not uh, fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, we saw when Romney was running for president, his wife has MS and that was part of the conversation was like, Mm -hmm. I remember people were really mad that they have a garage, like a fancy garage, but it's because it makes it easier for her to get in and out and and stuff like that. Like it's, it's interesting where we've moved forward and where we haven't. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I would, I would wonder, I genuinely wonder um, what diseases or, or, or what have you that the American public would not elect a person because of, if that makes sense. I mean, would we elect a person in a wheelchair today, for instance? Yeah. I I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I like to think we would. Um, And when I say we, I don't vote in this country, but uh, someday I hope to. Um, I hope that this country would. uh, But, I mean, we've been through a real humdinger of the last four years. So apparently all bets are off. I don't know. I mean, it just seems like... It, I have no idea who we will and will not elect <laughs> the, the criteria see seems Jessica insane. right now, on just all hands, sides. head in her hands. Yeah, I, it's, it's, yeah. I, this has nothing to do with West Wing, but I heard, uh, I read about a study recently where they found that if you offer a large group of people free ice cream, but only if they can all agree on a flavor, they will only ever agree on vanilla or chocolate. Nothing else, never, no matter how many times the experiment is run. And for some reason that is rooted in my mind to like, now I understand how presidents get elected in this country. Well, I mean, I would, I would, uh, you know, to, to go with the, the, the free analogy that you're, that you just brought up. (laughs) I mean, when I think about the various things that were given to people so they would get the vaccine. Yeah. (laughs) I, I mean, don't know, Phil. The country is exploding. I can't do anything about it. Like, straight up just stacks of money. Not to mention Here's- not getting a life-ending or life-altering disease. So I don't I don't know what uh yeah. It's it's a crazy, crazy, crazy time uh to, to be alive. <laughs> We've gone totally off the rail. No, but but I but I do think that it's I I 
It does tie back to this episode in a weird way, I do think, in the sense that, uh, or at least to the next episode, which I'm glad I'm getting to talk with you about a little bit because we're not, I'm not covering it with a guest. I'm skipping next week's episode. Um, it's, it's a really good episode. It does not grapple with the ramifications of his disease uh, that really doesn't get dealt with until For a year, two, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is kind of crazy. Um, I, I, it makes me honestly wonder if he had any real long-term plans for this disease or if it was just, I don't know. I really don't know because it's, it's strange that it disappears. It's strange that it, they yeah, drop this bomb. Like, do they ever talk about it again this season? Until until he's in the hospital, and it like that becomes an issue later on. Was that you know they don't tell or they tell the anesthesiologist, and and like that yeah. becomes a whole thing. But I don't think after that scene with Leo, we hear one word about it. I don't believe we do either. Now I'm obviously going to keep watching as I continue to cover these episodes. I wonder if it does. But I would also think that um, I don't know what the time constriction is. Yeah, it's a little like vague on timeline. So I don't, I don't really know if from here until the finale, right? And the, the finale and, and the premiere of season one and two are right on top of each other, right? Like it's a, it's a direct match. Or a, a, so I, I do feel like... It could be six weeks. It could be two months, well, right? Don't, like, doesn't the show skip a year somewhere? Uh, yeah, but I believe that's but that's between three, two, and three. I think because okay. he says he's running again at the end of two, and then I think there's a bit of a jump, and then we're sort of into re-election time. Okay, three so is that's a pretty condensed timeline too. We don't. Yeah, it's like. Election day happens mid-season four. Right. So it's all kind of squished together. Midterms happen at the top of season two. So like it kind of, it's a little wonky, but it sort of plays out. This is all just to say that I don't even know how long we've been in the administration when we come into the series, but the impression I get is that it's been about six, eight months. No, it's been a year. One of the things in the early in the first couple episodes is that like they've been there a year. They've, they've so said then that, that makes a sense. bunch of times. Yeah. So I, I guess this is all just a long way of saying that you could conceivably drop this bomb. And by that, I mean this MS thing here and it's only been a couple months, maybe that you could conceivably think that Leo's trying to figure out how to navigate this and what he might do. And it's been kept a secret this long what's a little bit more time as we get our ducks in a row? Like that's sort of where my head is at on it, but I agree with you. It's, it's feels like a long time. If it's, you know, 12, 12 or 13 episodes, that's a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause it's not really till Toby starts picking it apart and figuring it out that we get any movement on that plot at all. Yeah. And that's 17 people is mid season. Yeah. yeah, Two. It's pretty, it's pretty crazy how long they, 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 Anywho, yeah, pretty nuts. But um, anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, was there was there anything else in this episode that you that you wanted to talk about? Is there anything that jumps out at you? I don't think so. I just love Roger Reese, and I will watch him. <laughs> he was he was just brilliant. Uh, he is, as are you. So thank you so much for for being here and talking with me about this. Of and course. Uh, I look forward to our Studio Sixty podcast in the future. <laughs> yes, um, it's gonna. It be, is, I mean, it it's is gonna on, be great. It is recorded and on it's, the internet. Yeah, no, it's gonna happen. Listen, I would gladly do this with you, and we would get all sorts of guests that would love to 
talk about it. I think Perhaps it would be amazing. It. Yeah. Um, but yes, uh, at the very least, Emily Vanderwerf definitely has thoughts. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, thank you again, Jessica. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This is great. One last thing, please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Also, please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's. Thank you to Ernie and Will for producing our episode, Sullivan for our social media, Yonkatas for our artwork and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.